are continuing our series today, uh, The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And for those of you who, who haven't been with us uh, in the past year and a half, maybe you're visiting for the very first time, uh, this is a series where we are going through the major and minor stories of the Bible, all the way from Genesis through to Revelation, and we're discovering some of the amazing ways, some of the controversial, unconventional, and often unexpected ways that God reveals for us his love. And, and we started out back in September 2018. Uh, I was like over, I don't know how long ago that is, but it's like over almost a year and a half ago. And we started out in the book of Genesis. And so in Genesis, we kind of read through some of the stories of, of creation of the world, and we read through uh, the beginning of the nation of Israel through this man called Abraham. And then we read through Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua, and we followed as this nation that, that came from, from Abraham's descendants go from being enslaved to freedom to establishing themselves in the promised land of Canaan. And then we see these tribal conflicts that emerge in this, in this, uh, in this land as the nation of Israel fights with some of the other bands of the lands, whether it's the Canaanites or the Philistines, the Amorites, and all these other uh, peoples of the nation of Canaan. And, and we see then the rise of this monarchy in Israel. We read that through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. We see these, these, this rise of, of a monarchy, of a king, uh, kingly leader, a human kingly leader in Israel. And then we see in uh, 1 Kings, we see these, the split of this nation. This is, we've just recapped all of Genesis through 1 and 2 Kings pretty much. Uh, we see a split uh, of this nation and and the split results in, in a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And, and throughout this entire kingly reign, throughout the, uh, the kings of the north in Israel and the kings of the south in Judah, we've seen a mix uh, of different types of kings. We've seen good kings. We've seen bad kings. We've seen everything in between. And today we are exploring the last of our stories in 2 Kings. And we're going to be in 2 Kings chapters 8 and 13. And these aren't, these aren't at all the last of the stories of the book of Kings, but they are kind of the last few final narratives of our book as, as the rest of the book uh, primarily dedicates itself to briefly recording the reigns and, and the moral deeds of the kings of Israel and Judah. And so the rest of uh, Second Kings can um, maybe bog you down. It's not as narrative. It's not as story driven as some of the rest of Kings. And so uh, these will be the last in our chapters 8 and 13. Uh, and as we as we kind of begin this new chapter in, in Israel's uh, history that, that ends after 2 Kings, we, we find that Israel's history stops uh, being of, of a nation in control of their own destiny, control of their own uh, powers, even though they're afflicted by all these other uh, kingdoms and, and, and they're, they're attacked and, and they're always in trouble. Um, this kind of the end of 2 Kings begins an entirely new type of story for Israel. And this is the part that I'm actually the most excited about exploring with you guys as we kind of go on through the next couple of months, uh, because this, this is some of my favorite stories in, in the Bible, because this, this is where the, the captivity begins for Israel. This is where the exile begins for Israel as different nations begin to conquer the people of Israel, take them captive, take them back to different lands. And although the people of the time found themselves rather hopeless because of the situation they found themselves in, this is where the prophetic writers come in and they communicate this promise of hope that God would eventually deliver his People And this exilic period, this period of exile, is a period of, of what I like to call expectant hope. Expectant hope, where, where the people, where the majority of, of the Bible's prophecies concerning, uh, they concern a, a coming Messiah. 
a, a deliverer, a savior, a person who would later come and deliver Israel. And then we find out, because now we're skipping all the rest of the New Testament, or the Old Testament to the New Testament for this, uh, we find out that this Messiah that is supposed to come is identified through the New Testament Gospels as the Jesus of Nazareth. And this is where we get really excited as things begin to ramp up. But we're starting our story and ending our stories uh, today with 2 Kings chapter 8. So 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 7, it'll be available on the screen for you if you want to read along, a new international version. It says this, Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. He was sick. When the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Hazael, take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, will I recover from this illness? Hazael went to meet Elisha, taking with him as a gift 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, Will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. And he stared at Hazael with a fixed gaze until Hazael was embarrassed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asked Hazael. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Hazael said, how could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then Hazael left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, what did Elisha say to you? Hazael replied, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day, he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, spread it over the king's face so that he suffocated and died. Then Hazael succeeded him as king. Pretty dark story we're reading here. And, and, and it's interesting that Elisha starts off here in chapter 7. Elisha is going to Damascus. This is the land of the Assyrians. This is the land of, of Ben-Hadad. This is the land of Aram. And we don't know exactly why Elisha is traveling to Damascus. It doesn't explicitly state it. It doesn't say this is the reason that Elisha was traveling. But we might speculate a few things. And we speculate that Elisha was traveling there because he was fulfilling one of Elijah, not Elisha, Elijah's obligations. You see, in 1 Kings, back in the story of 1 Kings chapter 19, after Elijah has this encounter with God, after Elijah's in Mount Horeb, and hears the small whisper, God tells Elijah, anoint Jehu, king of Israel, and anoint Hazael, king of Aram, to an, and then furthermore, anoint Elisha as your prophetic successor. That's the, the command that God had given Elijah. Elijah does only one of those things before he's taken up to the heavens with a chariot of fire. And he fulfills his, his only mission that he fulfills is, is anointing Elisha, his prophetic successor. He fails to anoint Jehu and he fails to anoint Hazael. So we assume that as Elijah's successor, Elisha is heading off to Damascus to find Hazael and anoint him king over Aram, fulfilling the mission of his predecessor, fulfilling the mission of his mentor. Uh, and this is a pretty safe speculation because later in chapter 9, we read that the next thing that Elisha does is anoint Jehu, king of Israel. So this is probably the mission that Elisha is on. But Ben-Hadad, 
hears that Elisha is in the area, and he sends out his, uh, his servant, his, uh, his royal courtier. This is the person that would attend the king or would advise the king, uh, who was kind of like the second in command almost, you might put it. Uh, and he sends out Hazael to find Elisha, and, and, and they meet. This is the very person that Elisha is looking for. And he meets him to inquire of the Lord through Elisha for Ben-Hadad. Hazael goes to find out for Ben-Hadad, through Elisha, of the Lord, will this man recover? Will our king recover from the illness that he is currently suffering? And apparently the illness wasn't too grave. It wasn't too bad because, yes, Elisha told the messenger, yeah, yeah, the king's going to survive the, the illness, right? He will recover from the illness. Unfortunately, though, he will die of other causes. And then Elisha stares at Hazael. We read this in the story that he stares so intently at Hazael that it becomes awkward. I don't know how long it takes for you to stare at someone before it comes awkward, but it does. It becomes awkward. And then the prophet begins to, to weep, even more awkward. They're already in this awkward situation where he's just staring at him blankly. He's like, what are you looking at? And, and then he begins to cry. And then Elisha weeps because he sees the wickedness that Hazael, the soon-to-be king, would perpetrate against Israel. Some terrible stuff. But even though he sees the evil that Hazael would bring, he follows through with the command given to his predecessor Elijah, and he anoints Hazael king of Aram. This is our first lesson for today. Our first lesson is this. This may be familiar because we've kind of discussed this a bit in the past. We work with the guilty. We work with the guilty. That's our first lesson for today. You see, a few weeks back, we saw that God works with the guilty. Right? We saw that God deals with uh, and warns this idolatrous nation. He gives Israel these warnings of, of, the, of the impending doom that Aram has set up, and he prevents them from being caught in, in, in the snares and the traps in the military tactics that Aram had been trying to deploy against Israel. But today we see that we are also called to work with the guilty. It's not just God that works with the guilty, it's us. Elisha was asked to inquire of the Lord regarding Ben-Hadad's death. How many of you guys recognize the name Ben-Hadad? I hope so, because I've been saying it like a million times in the last four sermons if you were here with us. This, this Ben-Hadad is the same Ben-Hadad that has killed Israelite kings. He's the one who killed Ahab. He is the same Ben-Hadad who took Israelite slaves like the young girl who served Naaman and taught him about Elisha and then the whole leprosy thing and the curing. This same Ben-Hadad is the Ben-Hadad who has constantly threatened and killed Israelite people. He has burned their towns. He has murdered their, their, their women, their children, their brothers, their sisters, everyone. This is the Ben-Hadad who besieged Samaria. We read about this last week and caused many to die of starvation. He caused a, a, a siege around the city of Samaria so bad that the people resorted to eating their own children. This is the same king. This king, Ben-Hadad, was the same king who sent an army to go and capture Elisha in the city of Dothan. If there was any person to hold a grudge against, if there was any person to hate, this would be the person, especially for Elisha, because he's been negatively affected directly by the actions of this king. But we don't see Elisha treat the king any differently. 
We don't see uh, him treat him differently than we would expect Elisha to treat a, a Yahweh-worshipping Israelite. He treats him the same as everybody else. Elisha treats the king with respect. He inquires of the Lord as requested, and he gives this favorable message of recovery. And even when Elisha sees the pain that Hazael would cause, he still delivers the message and anoints him king over Aram. Elisha did not let any of his personal feelings or his hurts get in the way of what God was calling him to do. You see, not only does God work with the guilty, God also calls us to work with the guilty. He calls us as sinners to minister to, work with, and meet the needs of other sinners. He calls us to bring his word to the broken, to the messed up, to the currently messing up, and to the ones who will continue to mess up. God calls us to work with the people who frustrate us, with the people who annoy us, with the people who irritate us and boil our blood. God calls us to work with the people that we might deem unlovable. God even calls us to work with the people who have and will cause us pain and suffering. You see, to love only the people who are good to us, to love only the people who lift us up, the people who encourage us, to love only the people who love us back is nothing special. In fact, it's rather ordinary. But to love the people who hate us, to love the people who hurt us, to love the people who have nothing to say about us, to love our enemies, to love the guilty, that is what it means to be God's church, to be God's people. That is what it means to be extraordinary. That's the extraordinary love that God calls us to. God calls us to work with the guilty, and so we work with the guilty. It's a, it's a hard message, because I know that I don't want to work with the people who hurt me. I know I don't want to work with the people who frustrate me. I know I don't want to work with the people who just boil my blood. There are people sometimes who have just caused terrible hurt in my life but I'm called to work with them regardless of my feelings. So we're going to skip now. This is all going to come together. We're going to skip a few chapters, and we're going to read near the end of Elisha's life in chapter 13, starting in verse 10. So uh, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 10, and it says this, In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from, from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. Verse 14. Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and, and, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. And when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and, and Jehoash opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at effect. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with the king and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it, but now you will defeat it only three times. 
So we're at the end of Elisha's life now. This is the end of his ministry, and Jehoash is visiting uh, Elisha. He has a good relationship with this prophet. Even though he's not a good king, he has this love for this prophet. So he goes, and, and, and he goes to weep and to mourn with Elisha as Elisha is sick on his deathbed. And Elisha has one final prophecy for this Israelite king. He commands him, shoot outside towards the east. This is kind of where, like, the front of the Arameans would meet uh, Israel. The east is kind of the area where Aram would come from and attack Israel. So he says, shoot towards the east. And then Elisha, he does something very interesting, very peculiar here. He puts his hand on the king's hands as a gesture that God's guidance would be over Jehoash. And this king shoots. And Elisha cries out as the arrows are being shot out. Elisha says, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, you will completely destroy the Arameans at effect. So then Elisha commands him to strike the ground and then the king, it's the story goes, shoots only three times. And Elisha is frustrated because he didn't shoot more. You see, when Elisha tells the king to shoot the first time, there's this pattern that is being established that the Lord would be with Jehoash. That's why he puts his hand on the king's hand. And shooting the arrow, arrow symbolized victory over Aram. So when Elisha asks the king to shoot again, the symbolism would not be lost on the king. But Jehoash half-heartedly shoots only three times at the ground. And Elisha tells him, you should have shot more arrows. You should have shot with fervor and with passion because then your victory over Aram would have been completed. This is, this is Aram, the nation that is led by Hazael. And this is our second lesson today. Our second lesson is this. We receive as we rely. The more we rely on God, the more we receive. The more we claim of God, the more God gives. You see, we know God to be a good God. We know, and as we saw this in the story of Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3, that God is willing to give the things that we haven't asked for. But the more we ask of God, the more room it creates for God to do the miraculous. Are you guys following so far? God will always bless far more than we ask of him. So the more we ask of him, the greater the miracle we receive as we rely. You see, the arrows weren't representative of Israel's strength. Elisha declares it. He says it. the Lord's arrow of victory. Jehoash was shooting arrows of the Lord's victory, so he would receive as much as he relied on God. Elisha was not trying to trick Jehoash. It wasn't this secret test. That's why Elisha sets up the activity in the first place, establishing that God would be with Jehoash, setting up the idea that these arrows that he shot would be the Lord's victory over the armies of Aram. So when Jehoash is asked to take all of the arrows, because that's what Elisha says, take all of the arrows and fire a second time, Jehoash should be familiar with what is happening in this second activity. He should know what this second activity represents. You see, God opens up opportunities for us, but we can only receive as much as we are willing to rely on him. Yes, following? God opens up opportunities for us, but we can only receive as much as we are willing to rely on him. We receive as we rely but despite the destruction that Hazael caused against Israel, it was this destruction by the hands of Hazael that served as consequences and accountability for the actions of Ahab, king of Israel. Ahab is long dead, but he set up this series of consequences that have now followed the rest of the Israelite kings up until this point. And it was said uh, by, by God to Elijah that both Jehu and Hazael would be the ones to put an end to the lineage of Ahab for the idolatry that they had caused Israel to commit. And there's this pattern 
that happens in the book of Kings and the books of, books of Chronicles. And we're going to explore that next in, in, in the continuing part of our series. But it's this pattern, this idea that everything bad that happens to Israel and Judah is a result of, of them abandoning and forsaking God. That's the pattern that 2 Kings and First and 2 Chronicles set up. This idea that whatever happens to Israel and Judah is a result of the consequences and the choices that, that they've decided. The, the results of subjugation and oppression they experience at the hands of other nations is because of the idolatry that they've given themselves to. We've kind of explored this idea already. That, that, as, that as Yahweh protects them, if they abandon Yahweh, if they abandon God, they give themselves up to be protected by the other gods they follow. If you want to follow the gods of Baal, if you want to follow the gods of Chemosh, if you want to follow the gods of Molech, go ahead but rely on them from, for strength. That's what Yahweh said. If you want to follow me, I'll protect you. If you want to follow the other gods, then rely on them. So what do they do? They follow these other gods, they rely on them, and these gods, as we know, don't exist, aren't powerful, don't have anything. And so what happens to Israel? They get affected by all the other nations, right? Nations who are far more superior in military might than the Israelites. The Israelites don't have all this military technology. So what happens when they rely on powerless gods? They get destroyed. They get enslaved. They get, they get captured, right? And so this is our third lesson today. And this is our most important one. Uh, this kind of connects with our fourth lesson. We we'll only have four lessons today. But our third lesson is this. We are held accountable. There is a theme throughout the book of the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. And this theme throughout the book of Kings and Chronicles is that the choices that we make have consequences. There is accountability for these choices. The turmoil that both David and Solomon experience because of their sons vying for power is due to both Solomon and David's polygamy. That's what the story sets up. This political turmoil that both Israel and Judah experience are because of their idolatry. The prophets from Elijah to Isaiah to Jeremiah all the way to the last book of the Old Testament see oppression at the hands of foreign rulers as punishment for their sins. This is important. Because this is, this is the rest of the story from here, 2 Kings, all the way to the beginning of the New Testament, carries this idea. It, this, is, this is huge. The end of the book of Kings is the end of the nation of Israel and Judah as we know it. It's the beginning of a period of hopelessness, or what I like to call expectant hope, as they long for a day where the nations of Israel would be united and led by God under their own kingdom. So for the rest of the story of the Bible, from here, 2 Kings on, we're not going to see Israel become an autonomous nation like they were before. We're going to see them subjugated by the Assyrians. We're going to see them subjugated by the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And the prophetic writers write that this is Israel being held accountable for their idolatry and being punished through exile and defeat. So part of what we read the prophets right, and we're going to read this later on in our series, is that although they're, 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 they might uh, repent, although they might go back to God, there is this idea that there needs to be a change in behavior, a break from the sins and injustice into reconciliation, into renewal of relationship with God. There has to be this accountability. Because as much as we'd like to believe that there is forgiveness without accountability, that's not how it works. Forgiveness is not an all-you-can-sin pass. Did you guys hear that? Forgiveness is not an all-you-can-sin pass. God's grace cover our sins, past, present, and future. But forgiveness is not the rubber stamp that allows you to continue to perpetuate injustice in the world without fear of consequences. This is, for me, at least right now in my mentality, this is so important. I'm going to go off script for a second because I want to talk about this documentary that I've been watching. I'll just vent to you guys. This documentary that I've been watching on Netflix is called The Family. Have you guys ever heard of it, seen it? This is a weird documentary. It's about this Christian organization in the States 
that was set up years ago that has influence over all, if not almost all, of the presidents and senators and leaders in the United States. They're the ones who hold the whole prayer conference and prayer breakfast, and they're kind of like, there's this whole thing with them and colluding with Russia and whatever. But, I, but the thing is that I was always wondering in my mind, this has always been a question of mine, how can, and forgive me if this is your political opinion, but this is just mine, how can genuine Christian believers validate and justify the actions of the current presidency? That's been my question. How can genuine Christian believers who love Jesus justify the actions of the current president and his group or whatever? And I was, I was watching this documentary because it talks about it. And it's interesting that these people, the family believes that, that as long as you're in power and believe in God, regardless of what your theology is, regardless of what your ideology is, regardless of how you act, if you just believe in God, you are a godly ruler. They believe that as long as you are in power, God has set you up and you cannot be taken down or whatever the case is. God has put you there. He has put you there for a reason. They also believe, and this is the most crazy part to me, is that if you are a godly ruler defined as a person who just believes in God, your actions don't matter. That's what they believe. They believe that your actions don't matter because God's forgiveness covers everything. Yeah, I believe that God's forgiveness covers everything. But this idea through the Bible is that forgiveness covers everything, but there is accountability. They believe that there is no accountability. They believe that accountability is thrown outside because you're a godly ruler. And I was watching this documentary and I was like, man, this is how people justify this presidency. This is how people justify the murder of children. This is how people justify all these terrible actions that are being done because they never believe in accountability. They believe that sin is whatever, it just happens, God forgives you, you're done with, you don't have to change your life. You don't have to move on from this. You don't have to act differently. And I was watching this documentary and there's this video clip of Trump being interviewed by this, uh, this Christian leader, they're on this Christian network. And, and the leader asks, he says, Trump, he's like, have you ever like sought forgiveness for God for the things that you've done? And he's not like trying to trap Trump, like he's a genuine Trump supporter. So he's just asking, having this conversation. And Trump says, what do you mean? <laughs> And he's like, you know, like, have you ever sought repentance? And he's like, no, not really. I just do what I do and I move on. And I sat there like bewildered by this ideology that you can believe that forgiveness removes accountability. It doesn't. That's what the story tells us. Forgiveness does not remove accountability. And this is an important part. This is the whole book of Isaiah, the whole book of Jeremiah, the whole book of Amos, Hosea, any other prophet you want to read is this idea. There is accountability because they believe this is the thing of the Bible. Sin is injustice. Sin is injustice. It is the breaking of relationships with God and with others. Sin is the destruction of community. And in the same way that God deals with injustice in an overall sense, we are also held accountable to the injustices we perpetuate or perpetrate through our sins. Do you guys follow so far? Sin is injustice. And we're going to read this throughout the rest of the story. And this sermon really is just about setting up the rest of our story. It is about setting up Chronicles and the rest of the prophets. Because we're going to read through the story that even though these nations, because this is what the prophetic writers write, they say even though these nations come as a form of accountability for Israel, those nations are too held for their own accountability. Right? So Babylon comes in 
as a punishment for the sins of Assyria. Assyria came in to punish the sins of Israel. Babylon comes in to punish the sins of Assyria. Persia comes in to punish the sins of Babylon. Greece comes in to punish the sins of Persia. And then Rome comes in to punish the sins of Greece. That's how Daniel sets it up. That's how the other biblical prophets portray these changes in political leadership. But we'll find this later on in the book of Daniel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, that eventually the whole world comes into accountability with God. That the Messiah figure comes to restore God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, and return them to Jerusalem where the Messiah would rule his people in peace and love and justice. And if you think we're going to end on this kind of like somber note, we're not. Don't worry. We're going to read the rest of these verses, verse uh, 22 and 23 in 2 Kings chapter 13. These are our final verses. This is my favorite part. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. We know this. But the Lord was gracious to Israel, had compassion, showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, this writer is writing, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. See, the author of the Kings is, is writing that after some time, after all of this history takes place, the author writes that to this day, God has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. He writes... And that despite their continued sin, despite their perversion of justice, despite their abandonment of Yahweh, this God, the God of the Israelites, has been gracious and compassionate towards his people. Instead of banishing them, instead of abandoning them completely or destroying them outright, God continues to preserve his people. Even in their state of exile, even in their captivity, God continues to preserve for and care for his people. The author is reminding us, the reader to rejoice in God's compassion because he has not destroyed them for their disobedience. This is an idea that seems strange. It's a weird idea. Thanking God for not destroying us, that's a weird idea. But you have to take into account the world in which the ancient people lived in. They lived in a world where they believed the gods could destroy you for any slight or offense. If you offered sacrifices wrong, you might be killed. If you offended the God somehow, you might be killed. If you went against another God, you might be killed. Death was just around the corner for any person who rubbed the gods the wrong way. If you guys have ever read the Odyssey, Homer's epic, you'll read that Odysseus spends 10 years out at sea after the Battle of Troy. He wants to go home to Ithaca, but he doesn't. He spends 10 years out at sea because he offends the God Poseidon. He doesn't worship the god Poseidon, he worships the goddess Athena, and even though he is Athena's favorite in the story, he is punished by, by offending the god Poseidon. It's this idea that the gods were fickle, they were prone to outbursts, they were easily offended, they were rash and emotionally driven, but not Yahweh. This is the important part. But not Yahweh. The authors have no doubt in their mind that Yahweh, this Israelite God, is the supreme God. They know that Yahweh has dominion over the earth. Nothing happens on earth without Yahweh's consent. This Yahweh could just as easily destroy his people, start over, but he doesn't. This God isn't like the other gods. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This God is patient. This is our final lesson for today. We are preserved in his patience. I want to invite the band to come on up as we begin to close. We are preserved in his patience. The greatest indicator of God's love for his people is his patience. For Israel, this was unexpected. 
This was against their religious expectations and ancient worldview. A God who would patiently put up with disobedience out of love for his people. A God who would look back and, and hold back his righteous anger and refrain from destruction. This was new. This was different. This was a God completely unlike any of the other gods. One thing the author of Kings and Chronicles makes clear is that although all of this pain and suffering and exile and enslavement occurs, and even though they are under foreign oppressors, it's not God who sends them. They make it clear that everything bad that the people of Israel experience was the result of their choices, their rebellion, their sin. What God does is step in when the people cry out. What God does is bring deliverance when the people need it. What God does is patiently hold back and meet rebellion with love, not destruction. We are preserved in his patience. See, the story of the Bible shows us that forgiveness and accountability go hand in hand. We are held accountable for the injustices that our sins create. God's forgiveness provides restoration of the relationships that sin break. Sin breaks, but we are held accountable to progress forward into righteousness, into right living, into loving mercy, acting justly, and walking humbly with our God. You see, we are deeply broken. If you haven't seen that already, then you will. The story of the Bible shows that we are deeply broken, and our brokenness comes from our tendency to repeat the same mistake again and again, over and over and over again. Our brokenness is from us receiving forgiveness, but then wasting it by refusing to change. But the story of the Bible shows this. It's my favorite lesson. The love of God is patient. It is never-ending. It is bottomless. It is without limit or condition. And above all, above all things, God's love is patient. Because even when we repeat the same mistakes again and again and again, God's love is still there. Even when our sins hurt God and God's people, God's love is still there. Even when our rebellion leads us to reject him completely and make God, idols out of anything and everything, God's love is still there. Where we might expect judgment, God gives grace. Where we might expect destruction, God gives forgiveness. Where we might expect punishment, God gives love. That's the unexpectedness of Jesus. That his love will always be far greater than anything we could ever earn or deserve. The unexpectedness of Jesus is that God's love is infinitely patient. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not slow as some, might, as some might think him to be slow, but God is patient, waiting for us, hoping and expecting that none of us should perish, but that everyone should find life through him. That's the unexpectedness of Jesus, patience in his love.